care for all Your bros can suck my balls Fuck your reply guys Please don't fuck your reply guys Just listen to reply guys Hello and welcome back to Reply Guys, the uh, leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. For the rest of us. <laughs> uh, I'm Julia Claire. She's Kate Willett. Uh, we're sad. <laughs> we're very. Uh, yeah, we're pretty upset. Uh, we're not. It's it's a it's a tough day here on Reply Guys. <laughs> Um, we we are uh, kate and i are currently on on opposite coasts uh we are recording uh via skype and uh just uh really marinating in the the results of the march 10th primaries right now yeah uh we are uh it's it's about 7 15 pacific time right now as we're recording so we don't have any results from north dakota or washington yet but it looks like uh, biden has won uh michigan and mississippi and missouri and you know uh we, we just don't know on the other states but i mean they were projected to go to biden so we'll see what happens uh, but either way it looks like it was a very Strong night uh, for the insurance industry and the fossil fuel industry and weapons manufacturers look like they had a, an overwhelming, uh, overwhelmingly wonderful uh, performance this evening. You know, they've been on a on a decades long campaign of winning uh, the fossil fuel industry and they they uh, they aren't going to be stopped, I guess. I don't know. I'm so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty devastating. Um, I'm like especially uh, I'm especially demoralized about uh, Michigan, which is was the big prize of the night, 125 delegates. And it's I I was really holding out hope for Michigan because uh, Bernard won in 16. And, uh, you know, say what you will about Hillary Clinton, but watching joe biden do so much better than her in certain states is upsetting (laughs) yeah i mean hillary clinton was very hated by a lot of working class voters and uh joe biden isn't really he has a lot of working class support so which is wild because i mean this is a guy who has on multiple occasions tried to get tried to privatize social security (laughs) yeah um it's i mean today he uh like yelled at a union member um or at least a video came out of him like yelling at a union member and he's just you know i mean his campaign is obviously so bad uh for the working class you know he was a a supporter of nafta a supporter of the iraq war as we've talked about on on our drag his ass joe biden episode and um yeah, I mean, he's going to face a lot of, I think, the same issues that Hillary Clinton did in the Rust Belt um, because Trump could run to his left on the Iraq war and on NAFTA and um, what else? Other things. I don't know. Uh, not Social Security, but I mean, it's like you you can't say that uh, Biden hasn't tried to uh, cut Social Security. And pri- well, no, I mean, honestly, 
But so Trump, Trump could run to his yeah. Trump could run to his left on social security. Yeah, like he, he's he's probably he's probably done less uh, to take a swing at social security than Biden has. I'm uh, very upset. Obviously, Hillary Clinton had you know had a lot of uh, rightful criticism from the working class. I'm just saying that Joe Biden actually. I think people have more bullets in the chamber. Uh, to to aim at Joe Biden in in terms of uh, his opposition to progressive uh, policies that would benefit the working class. Uh, yeah, you know, for someone who purports to, I, I think he, you know, he talks he t- he talks a lot about uh, about the middle class, but it's clearly just, I mean the. It's clearly just words because he he part of the reason part of the the people who are most affected by the quote unquote disappearing middle class are younger people and he has like an open contempt for younger people. Yeah. Um it's been uh yeah, it's been a a demoralizing campaign season, especially these last few weeks. Yeah, well, I mean, really, uh, we were, uh, I think, you know, Bernie Sanders was the front runner until like a, until like a day or two before Super Tuesday. So, you know, I'm sure everyone who listens to this is probably up on this. But what happened was, you know, after... Okay, so Joe Biden won South Carolina. Uh, he got a big endorsement there, Clyburn's endorsement. Um, and he won by a lot more than he was projected to win by. So the media took this narrative and fucking ran with it, that Joe Biden has had some amazing surge. And then um, Obama called, we think, called uh, Amy and Pete and asked them to drop out and endorse Joe Biden. And then they both did that. And then Super Tuesday... Um, uh, Biden like way outperformed what people thought that he was going to do. Um, Bernie won California and it looked like he was going to win Texas, but then Joe Biden ended up winning it by a point, which like, honestly, I am like slightly skeptical that, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say everybody who thinks that there might've been something fishy going on with that is completely, Nuts for thinking so. Um, I mean, the whole, even the stuff that's out in the open is extremely fishy. The fact that they basically, like, the DNC did some very high-level musical chairs to consolidate the vote around Biden, who so many of these moderate candidates who entered the race did so because Biden is such a uniquely weak candidate is like absolutely incredible to me. I mean, it's not unbelievable. I totally believe that they would do that. Um, But it's just really disheartening. And then you had, you know, in the intervening days since then, you had uh, Kamala Harris a few days ago endorsed uh, Biden. And today called him out. For his record, called him a racist on TV. Yeah. <laughs> and rightfully so. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. Yeah, Cory Booker and also like called Corey him Booker out today. Today, Cory Booker uh, endorsed Joe Biden, and then uh, just a f- um, few mere minutes ago, Andrew Yang 
endorse Joe Biden as well. Um, but you know what? I don't care because Bernie got that hot, hot Dua Lipa and Halsey endorsement. And that's no, I I'm so mad. I'm like, I literally, I, I think I'm going to like start getting really into CBD or something. I'm going to change my personality because I'm so <laughs> upset. Yeah. I mean, here's okay. So much has been made on left Twitter about the Elizabeth Warren's lack of endorsement and Elizabeth. War- oh yeah, 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 yeah. Elizabeth Warren did go on Rachel Maddow and she talked about, uh, you know, the Bernie bros and, um, I think kind of low key implied that that's part of the reason that she was going to not endorse. I actually don't think that that's the reason. Um, I think that her justification was uh, similar to what it was in 2016, which was that the eventual winner was pretty much set by the establishment and she wanted to have some influence in a Hillary Clinton administration. And so, uh-huh. uh, yeah, I think she didn't endorse uh probably has more to do with her wanting continual influence uh, versus like uh, a fuck you to the Bernie bros online. I don't, I don't really buy that justification, but I do still think that it is like pretty morally messed up that she did not endorse with so much at stake. It's really disappointing. And um, I'm super disappointed. I'm, you know, I, I really, I have to say as disappointed as I am with Warren herself and I really I, I I agree with your analysis on on why I I assume she didn't endorse, but I I'm very impressed with just maybe it's just the people I've seen on Twitter, but basically everyone on Twitter who is a former staffer of hers has like since she dropped out I've seen just be like deep in the tank for Bernie and today thirty I think thirty five of her like top staffers signed. Um, a letter of endorsement for Bernie. Um, so, and I've, and I've actually seen some of her former staffers say that they're disappointed that she didn't endorse him. So I think for, you know, and, you know, I, I think that this is, this is so disappointing because it's such a, this entire primary is, uh, really a referendum on the generation, the generational rifts that we have within the democratic party. Uh, and I think it's just a lot of people, not only who are kind of just, uh, lining up to protect their class interests, but also just people who are older, who are not going to be around to see the, uh, the damage that their votes are going to do. Yeah, Um, I think that that's a big part of it. And I also, you know, I also just want to kind of because here's the thing, like everyone is blaming the individual voters. And I do think that individual voters who voted for Biden bear some blame. And, you know, there's certain groups of them that I'm more mad at than others, like any fucking professional feminist who supports Joe Biden. Ew, ew. I'm just disgusted. But that being said, yeah, that being said, you know, um, I mean, we've talked about, of course, like manufacturing consent on the show. And there was a wide manufactured consent um, by a cable news that Joe Biden was the one that could beat Trump and that Bernie Sanders couldn't. And a lot of people bought into 
that narrative and voted out of fear, I think. And, you know, I was also I was kind of looking back through some, you, you know, how uh, Pete's dad was a Gramsci scholar. Well, I, <laughs> yes. I, I was. <laughs> I was looking uh, at some Gramsci last night and, you know, I am certainly not a Gramsci scholar, but, you know, he was talking about um, that. Uh, is, OK, I'm, I'm not going to do a good job of explaining this, but this is like what I as a not uh, super academic socialist kind of took away from it. You know what, Kate, Kate, you and I are I swear to God, you and I are going to get Pete's dad on the on the show. He's, he, he actually died uh, last. Oh, damn yeah, it. Uh, yeah. Well, from beyond the grave, we're getting Pete's dad on the show. Yeah, he died last year, but, uh, you know, he, his whole thing was talking about uh, cultural hegemony and that, like, a lot of Marxists focus on, like, the you know, how the revolution will happen, um, you know, that the uh, proletariat will uh, rise up and take power from the ruling class, but that people don't really consider that there's this obstacle of cultural hegemony that all of these cultural figures are really bought into... Um, you know, this idea that like the way that things are, the status quo is the way that it has to be. And there are people that are like that because, you know, um, they just think that. And there are people that are also kind of promoting that agenda on purpose, which is probably most people in cable news. But, you know, uh, I mean, just I think the kind of changing people's minds that a better world is possible and that we don't have to just completely vote out of fear is, you know, that is a task for the left, especially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is there is an age divide for sure. But, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of people are still very convinced that centrism is the only thing that is electable, which is like, of course, so stupid because, you know, Al Gore lost and John Kerry lost and Hillary Clinton lost. Um, and, you know, maybe Joe Biden will lose too, probably. But, you know, it's like, I think that the most like mature outlook probably like, you know, on my best day, I recognize the, like the, um, the extreme, influence of the dnc here and the influence of the media and just a lot of people are um you know we i I mean it makes sense that a lot of people buy into the idea that you know joe biden is the one to beat trump and it's uh it's incredibly fucked up but here we are yeah so I'll, i'll take that uh the generational divide a step further uh and kind of um, piggyback off of, of your point about the media. Um, I think part of that generational divide is obviously that, um, that an older age demographic is much more likely to watch the 24 hour cable news networks and is much more likely to be influenced by them in how they vote. I think, you know, they did exit polls in uh, going back to super Tuesday in uh, in places like Virginia and Massachusetts, and a lot of voters who voted for Joe Biden made up their mind in the intervening like forty eight hours between South Carolina and Super Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, like, and that and that's why I have a problem with people calling anyone low information voters because it's usually that's usually not the case. It's like. It's a, it's an issue of be, of disinformation voters. It's like those people 
do you know they they are trying to like a lot of them are trying to like stay abreast of what's going on but they're listening to sources that they trust who are untrustworthy unfortunately and have like major corporate interests at heart instead of democratic interests um yeah it's really frustrating yeah i mean you know it's not (sighs) corporate power is being used to manipulate a lot of people and um you know it's extremely frustrating and disappointing and a lot of people make fun of republicans for voting against their own interests but democrats do it too and you know there's a whole machine in place to make sure the people do it you know it's uh i think it's it's really easy in times like this to uh despair that's certainly like what i want to do right now (laughs) um but you know i am there are a lot of local and state candidates who need our help And I'm canvassing this weekend for three candidates running for running for local office here in New York. And because we don't get to fucking vote in New York until April 20th. Yeah. (laughs) And when you canvass in New York, at least, and this may be true in whatever city that you live in, if your state hasn't had a primary yet, if you canvass with your local DSA, chances are you'll be canvassing for down ballot candidates. Um leftist candidates but also canvassing for bernie sanders at the same time and you know yeah i mean like okay like it's it's obvious i think to any uh rational person that you know joe biden is the likely democratic nominee but you know i think in i think for a lot of reasons it makes sense to continue fighting for bernie sanders um but you know the the better he does um the more clear it is to the democratic establishment that you know our our movement is big and that they cannot continue to um sideline all progressives i mean look that's what i'd say on my best day but obviously like the more uh, despairing takes about the dnc are not irrational either you know and you know what let's just take this to its logical end then say joe biden is the nominee uh one of the things that he he did in the last few days was that uh he was interviewed and said that he may, he may veto uh, Medicare for all, even if it came to his desk and it got the votes. And OK, so here's here's what I would like to see. The uh, unfortunately, because we had we don't have the muscle of like the billions of dollars in dark money that like centrists have and Republicans have. We are just going to have to do like groundswell organizing that this country has never seen before. And I think that we like, we're basically going to have to work to get leftist candidates elected in like all levels of government, because these issues are not going away. Like people, Medicare for all remains a pressing need in this country. A green new deal remains a pressing need in this country for the world. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I think that probably a lot of leftists um, are going to be, 
you know, tempted or will just go in a kind of direction of abandoning electoral politics after this. And here's my case to you for why you shouldn't do that. Um, You know, I mean, leftist candidates, uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, um, AOC, you know, they have really been able to radicalize a a lot of people and also give like a a pretty massive platform to a lot of these issues. And, um, you know, we're glad to have them there. There is there's a lot of support in the house uh, for Medicare for all now. And, you know, it's possible that we get to a tipping point. You know, the culture changes ideas change. It doesn't look like any of this is going to happen as fast as we want it to. And like, yeah, I, I definitely understand um, that what that means in real life is that more people are going to die and that more people are going to be deported. And I'm not trying to make light of it at all. But like, you know, I think that if you understand the stakes of it, then it really makes sense to keep going right now and not give in to the despair because I think that that's what they're hoping. I think that they're hoping that we just despair. And I mean, really that's the only way that, uh, that they win because, you know, I mean, it's like, I'm a post, uh, I'm a post 2016 socialist. I know there are a lot of people who became radicalized in 2015 and 2016. Um, you know, through the first Bernie Sanders campaign. And, you know, there are a lot of people who are radicalized in the interim. And there are a lot of people who are radicalized in this campaign. And Bernie Sanders um, built a very large multiracial working class base this time around. Um, You know, Elizabeth Warren, you know, even though I'm really mad at her right now, I I do think that her (laughs) campaign uh, brought some kind of centrist libs uh, over towards more progressive ideas. I think that there are probably people who support M4A now because Elizabeth Warren supported it. You know, so, I mean, the only way that we can ever win electorally, um, at least for presidential election and in a lot of local elections is, you know, um, by building support that is so overwhelming that it's not as easy to uh, rat fucking cheat because we know uh, that the Democratic establishment will do that. And it really has to be like, you know, undeniable like it was in Nevada. Um, if there's any chance yeah. of doing uh, what we want to do electorally, because we see whenever it's a close race, like it was with like Tiffany Caban um, in Queens, you know, like they they'll find a way to cheat if it's close. But if it's not close, it's a lot harder to find a way to cheat. So, you know, there's that. I would encourage you not to give up. I mean, we're still going to be interviewing like a lot of leftist candidates on the show. And uh, yeah. And also it's like, we've interviewed so many amazing candidates thus far uh, who still need your help, still need your, your donations and your time. And I am so inspired by, uh, by every one of them who, and, you know, you know, going back to your point about AOC and Rashida Tlaib and all of them ran for office, like in the ashes of the 2016 election, when a lot of, a lot of people like felt like giving up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, I think more and more people are starting to see what's going on. More and more people are starting to see the harms of capitalism. I mean, it's really just like, 
I think it's really just getting people to shift to the mentality that like it doesn't have to always be this way. You know, it really doesn't Mm -hmm. really, really, really doesn't. You know, I mean, Trump, here's what I've become convinced of is that Trump is absolutely the best thing that's ever happened to the Democratic Party, because I mean, he (laughs) is just, you know, I mean, he's bad enough that it's really easy for Democrats like Joe Biden to like. You know, Joe Biden has no merit as a candidate at all. He's a terrible person. Yeah. He's a misogynist. He's a racist, um, serial sexual harasser, um, you know, a uh, an architect of mass incarceration, uh, a champion of the Iraq war, even when he knew that there were no weapons of mass destruction. He is terrible. Um, but, you know, people can just be like, OK, he's not Trump. And that's he can run entirely on the basis of the fact that he's not Trump, you know, and it's like. I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, it's just the I think on citations needed, they call it uh, Trump washing. You know, it's just (laughs) the subject can be immediately changed to not Donald Trump, you know, and and we'll see a lot of that in the next coming weeks. I don't think Bernie Sanders is going to drop out or anything like that. I think he will uh, continue to campaign just like he did in 2016. Yeah, nor should he. Yeah. No, I absolutely don't think so, you know. And he is and he is and he is like much more I mean, he just has much more of a mandate now than he did then his share of the electorate in the party is larger. His coalition is far greater than it was in 16. Um, And I just think that like, I don't know if, I mean, again, say the, you know, say Joe Biden becomes a nominee. I don't know how he thinks that this is going to happen while being like openly hostile to uh, to people under 50. <laughs> like, yeah, and he's probably going to pivot right in the general as well, you know, and that's going to be... Can't wait. Yeah. Can't fucking wait. Yeah, uh, it's very gross and Joe Biden is very gross. Is this- and I mean, you know, uh, <laughs> I think people are going to ask us uh, all the time as Bernie voters uh, if we're going to vote for Joe Biden. And, you know, I would just like to say that, you know, I mean, I, for me... It shouldn't be time for people to have to decide that yet. I think that the like, are you going to vote for Joe Biden? Are you going to do blue no matter who? Um, that is uh, obscuring the issues that still stand. I think that the second that you post that you say blue no matter who or like just. It's, yeah, I mean, that's I don't I don't think that you have to tell people that you're going blue no matter who, because, you know, ideally the goal is um, like even if Joe Biden is the nominee is to, you know, get some fucking uh, concessions here, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think blue no matter who is, you know, uh, people are understandably afraid, um, but that's also like a. It's also a very privileged phrase that ignores the fact that, you know, some nominees are going to be much worse to marginalize people than others. And, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not time for that. We, I think we go down fighting here, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. Well, all right. One of our sadder (laughs) intros. Yeah. I mean, and by Um, the way, like, I don't, you know, I, I'm not saying that like 
this is like 100 percent set that Joe Biden is the nominee. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not. I mean, as we said, uh, New York does not vote until April 28th. So and also jo- we're hanging in yeah, there. I mean, <laughs> Joe Biden has tanked a couple of his other campaigns um, by being Joe Biden. And, you know, of course, they will probably hide him from the public eye as they have been doing. But, uh, you know, you, you don't know. I think I think we keep fighting here. I agree. Yeah. As I look at this, uh, there's, you know, bye bye Bernie and Bernie dropout trending on Twitter. And these like, fuck it. Who is? okay? what Joe Biden supporters are on Twitter besides Simone Sanders? I just don't know. Uh, Well, I mean, it's supporters (laughs) of all the other candidates, too, you know? Ugh. Yeah, I mean, it's just if, if, Get out if of fucking here. sucks, and these uh these toxic libs will be emboldened in their uh in their toxic hatred of people who want to do what's right, which is give everyone health care and take care of our planet and <laughs> abolish ICE, you know, and they are going to be really toxic and they're going to call you toxic and, you know, don't fucking listen. <sighs> We're fighting for justice. We are fighting for the right stuff. And, you know, do not give up. It is not the time. Think about how long Bernie Sanders has been uh, been fighting and losing most of the time. You know, we will lose most of the time. That is what it means to be a leftist, uh, is to lose a lot uh, and to keep <laughs> going and then win sometimes, <laughs> occasionally, you know? You know, it happens sometimes, and that's why we keep fighting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's the right thing to do. And cause yeah. The only thing more... Uh, irrational than fighting would be not fighting you know absolutely all right well um we have a really great um interview coming up uh with uh, a wonderful candidate who is running for congress in tennessee her name is meredith matlin and i had such a great time talking to her she's uh such a gem she's she's 24 and uh i i hate her for oh my god i hate, I, I hate her i hate her for that but i love her message i love her message uh hate her for we being 24 hate her for being 24 uh but we love we love to see we love to see uh to see someone god with that much with that much uh wherewithal to run for office that age my god well that's i mean there's there's a bright spot right there that there are people like her running for office um all right. Well, Kate, <laughs> I'm going to be in Seattle this weekend at the Comedy Underground. Um, come see me and, uh, you know, use Purell coronavirus. We didn't even talk about that, but there's a plague right now. Uh, yeah. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. All that shit. Uh, okay well hopefully we'll be in better better spirits uh, as the weeks go on. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. This is me, Kate. I am here with Meredith Matlin, who is running for Congress in Tennessee 5. How are you, Meredith? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on, Kate. I am so excited to have you on the podcast, although normally I do not talk to 24-year-olds who are uh, doing amazingly better things than I am. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. In my 30s, I am like, wow, it's really impressive that you are running for Congress at such a young age. Thank you. <laughs> I think what you're doing is awesome, too. Um, let's just jump in a little bit. Tell me a little bit about your district. Sure. So uh, my district is Tennessee's fifth, and, and it is all of Davidson County, which is where Nashville, Tennessee is, and all of Dixon County and part of Cheatham County. 
So it's like the northwest, middle, central part of Middle Tennessee. Oh, that's awesome. And like, what's what do you feel like is important to the voters in your district? Um, so I think that a few things that are really important to voters in our district is number one, healthcare. Uh, people who live outside of Tennessee don't really know this. They kind of think of Nashville as music city, but our biggest industry is healthcare. Um, the huge healthcare conglomerate HCA is based here. And so there are a lot of people employed in healthcare, but who don't have, uh, who are uninsured or underinsured, um, 261, thousand women in Tennessee are uninsured. That's something we focus on a lot uh, because it's a huge issue. And we have, obviously, we're a pretty urban district for the most part. There are some rural and suburban areas in the surrounding counties, but it's pretty urban and it's a pretty diverse population. And yet we have 56% of Hispanic women here who are uninsured. So uh, Medicare for all and healthcare in general is a huge issue here that voters are concerned with. And would you say that most of the people that you've talked to are supportive of Medicare for All? Um, I think it's it's kind of a mixed bag. I think that there is a lot more support lately. I, I think that there's a wonderful group here led by Kristen Grimm called Mothers for Medicare for All that's been doing a lot of awesome outreach and calling out our current representative, Jim Cooper. I, I don't think that it's really on people's radar until we bring it up and it sounds it sounds radical until we talk about it more and say, well, half of House Democrats are signed on to Pramila Jayapal's Medicare for All bill. And like, this isn't something that's crazy. Um, and then people kind of come around to it if they're uh, amenable to it in the beginning. But yeah, I'd say most people in leftist circles here are 100% down for Medicare for All. And is there a strong leftist community in Nashville? There is. There really is. I, I think people are surprised to hear that because they think of it as the Deep South. But um, we do have a, a very strong community and of leftists and even really far leftist circles here. Um, we have a very active DSA here and YDSA and Sunrise Movement. Uh, yeah, it's a vibrant community. It's also a college town. There are a lot of universities here. I went to college here. So there's a lot of organizing going on in the you know, young adult and youth level too. One thing that a few friends from the South, a few leftists from the South have told me is that people are actually more receptive to leftism than um, kind of a more traditional Democrat. Is, is that true? Is there any truth to that? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think that people are skeptical of establishment politics now more than ever all over the country, but also especially in the South. I mean, you know, in 2016, Bernie Sanders won some of, in the primary, won some of these far out counties, not in our district, but in far East Tennessee that are typically more conservative just because those sorts of politics that reject, uh, you know, establishment, corporate Democrat status quo type policies. Uh, people don't like that anymore. That's kind of on its way out for people who are paying attention. And I think that that definitely holds true in the South as well. Um, people who are paying attention don't want to see that anymore. Our current representative, um, his name is Jim Cooper. He's been in office with since um, 1983 <laughs> with a little break uh, in the 90s. Uh, and he is extremely, you know, corporate status quo. He's a blue dog Democrat and very proud of that. Um, and 
I, I really think that for a while people were just kind of not realizing how much influence and power he had over our district as our representative. And now that people are paying more attention, they're realizing that that's not representing us anymore. So I, I would say that that kind of far left, that what we think of as far left uh, or more quote unquote radical leftism here has more of a stronghold than people realize outside of the state and outside of the South in general. Yeah, it's really cool. Definitely canvassing for Bernie. I've gotten to meet leftists from all over the country and it's mm-hmm. just, it is, it's really cool. I met these like older socialists from Kentucky in Iowa <laughs> and it was just amazing to meet them. Like they've been doing it for 20, 30 years, like hardcore old unique awesome. And it was yeah. just like, it was just so inspiring to like see how happy they were to finally have like a, community you know because um you know i think that this has been a lonely road for a lot mm-hmm. of people who have been socialists for a long time yeah and you know now it's like it's so popular um yeah. yeah yeah so let's jump back to medicare for all because i know that that is a huge issue in your campaign um mm-hmm. one thing i really liked that you were talking about is medicare for all as a racial justice issue and i was wondering if you could expand on that a little bit Sure, absolutely. Uh, I think what's so important to remember about Medicare for All is that healthcare is is an issue that touches on touches everyone and touches everything. So yeah, I, I know I mentioned earlier, fifty six percent of Hispanic women in Tennessee are uninsured, and I, I find that to be a particularly compelling statistic because it's just so devastating. Um, we we have. A, a hugely diverse population in Middle Tennessee, um, demographically diverse, that our governor and our representatives um, love to talk about as some sort of badge of honor, even though they're not actually reaching out to those populations or giving them the support that they need. So Medicare for all and healthcare in general, this is an intersectional issue in that it touches on women's health. It touches on the health of minority communities. It touches on the health of LGBT communities because we all need to consume healthcare, whether we like it or not. Um, and so this would, this would be a policy that would reach every single one of those communities. Um, you know, 20% of women in Tennessee in all of Tennessee report having no healthcare provider at all. Uh, and, uh, 20% of black women are uninsured. It's just these these statistics that we hear, at least in Tennessee, we hear over and over again, and that just become numbers. But then you remember that these are real people who, especially in the South, you know, these are disenfranchised communities to begin with. So any issue that affects all of us is going to affect these communities even harder and even stronger. And that's why this is such a such an important issue to me and to our campaign. I completely agree with that. And, you know, one thing that has really been frustrating me lately is seeing how invested establishment media is in the narrative that there is somehow a distinction between economic issues and issues of racial justice or feminism. And, you know, to me, like Medicare for all is the issue that really exposes the hollowness of that logic more than anything else. Oh, absolutely. I I think that there's something uniquely insulting about politicians, especially just these establishment politicians who come from political dynasties and have been in the House and Senate forever telling us that 
we don't understand these issues because they don't even, these are economic issues. These are political, politicized issues. And, you know, they they don't concern us. Whereas these are all of these economic issues touch all of these communities, touch our communities and whatever, whatever demographics we represent or whatever communities we're a part of, they touch us in, in every single way. So, yeah, I think that that's, that's something that's really important is that there's just, there's just kind of like a smugness and an opaqueness that comes with being an establishment politician. That's like, Oh, these are just, these are money problems and we'll deal with them and you don't have to worry about it. Um, and that's just kind of a way of putting all of their corrupt business in a black box and saying that it doesn't concern us, concern us when it obviously does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, it's pretty clear that these people have a motivation, you know, which is obviously to not elect leftists to office, you know, but it just, I Mm. think that I like, you know, I, I tend to think a lot about this issue because I was somebody who was really persuaded by that argument in 2016 that like breaking up the big banks won't end racism, of course, Mm -hmm. like, no, of course it will not. But, you know, (laughs) big banks are very, uh, invested in a lot of really (laughs) racist structures you know of course yeah yeah I think that we for a while I and I mean yeah I am only 24 so I can't like speak to I, I wasn't like a a conscious being in the 90s but I think like there was this like in the 90s and early 2000s before the recession there was this kind of just like blind optimism a little bit that these institutions were operating separately from from systemic racism and systemic sexism and and all of these structural issues that obviously trickle down and touch all of her, our communities and there was just a kind of before the recession it was like very hands off um and I also really appreciate that that thing, you know, like into I kind of got my start in activism and stuff when I was a kid. I, I grew up um, in New Jersey, and so during Occupy Wall Street, uh, I like went into the city and protested with other kids and adults. And I think that the media, looking back, portrayed Occupy Wall Street as such a like fringe, like oh, a bunch of just dumb hippies looking for something to do. Um, Whereas now, I think that we can look back with a lot more perspective and say, like, no, these were serious concerns that we we didn't have a platform. Like, movements like Occupy Wall Street were trying to galvanize support for something that is now very mainstream, taxing Wall Street speculation, imposing a fee on these huge corporations and huge financial institutions that uphold not only structural economic problems but structural racism and structural sexism so yeah like all of these are just very interconnected and i think what like bernie sanders is allowing us to see how they're interconnected so yeah i appreciate you bringing that up for sure yeah absolutely and and, you know you you put that so well i mean it is a it has been really interesting to see how so many movements from like nearly a decade ago uh, or how and it has been really interesting to see how a movement from nearly a decade ago has, you know, really like even at the time, people didn't think it was necessarily doing something. But mm-hmm. now it has defined so much of the national discourse and in yeah. many ways, I think, paved the way for Bernie Sanders to run um, yeah. and people like yourself. So tell me a little bit about how you became politicized. What made you think about running for office? What made you interested in politics? 
Sure. Um, so yeah, like I said, from a young age, I was kind of just like a, a generally like angry at the establishment type person. And I think a lot, I owe a lot of that to my parents. Um, <laughs> my mom lost her job during the recession. And so that was kind of, I was like, oh, okay, we have a reason to be mad and now someone to be mad at kind of thing. Um, but I was only in eighth grade when all that happened. So, uh, but yeah, when I got to college, uh, I got involved with a group in my university called students for nonviolent action. Um, and this was kind of around the time that black lives matter was coming to be. And then the me too movement after that. Uh, and so I got really involved in that and it seemed like a, a way to organizing seemed like a way to literally galvanize and well I guess literally organize all of our anger at these giant interests that we felt like we couldn't touch and now we have together a route to actually make an impact and so I got really involved in activism and a movement to divest from the um, divest our university's board from the private prison industry uh, in 2015 and it kind of started from there because then when Bernie started running, I got really involved in Students for Sanders. And then from there, I got involved in DSA uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and I had always been really into the Medicare for All movement from the beginning as a person who's experienced medical debt. I know that's it's a universal story because everybody pretty much has either experienced medical debt or knows someone who has. And Tennessee leads the nation in medical debt. Um, and... Yeah, we could, we are a state, one of a few states that didn't expand Medicaid. Uh, and so we we get the really exciting opportunity to lead the state in medical debt. Um, a quarter of Tennesseans have some sort of medical debt. Uh, and yeah, so that's something that I had always been involved in. My sister um, is a cancer survivor. And so I, from a young age, I was very aware of how... Um, of how these, uh, like, I just didn't understand from a young age when my sister was diagnosed with cancer, how my family was now, this was in 2004, so I was like nine, um, how my family was going to start struggling financially. That was something that I didn't, I didn't understand how those two were connected. And now that I'm older, I still morally, I understand the fact that they are connected is just like a, a moral failing of this country. Uh, so that was really ingrained in me from a young age. Um, and then after college and grad school, I ended up working in cancer research, which is what I do now. And I see this every single day. I, I talk to patients every single day who either are underinsured or uninsured and are, if they're diagnosed with cancer, are just kind of screwed. And, and that is just infuriating to me. And we were in organizing spaces that I was involved in. We were kind of around summer of last year saying we really need someone to primary Jim Cooper just desperately because this is these are issues that the deadline has already passed like this isn't like we can wait sort of thing these are just such immediately important issues um and so to, to me I honestly I kind of believe that it doesn't really matter who holds that seat as long as that person has strong progressive values and is going to fight for bold progressive legislation. And that's obviously not Jim Cooper, who's the incumbent. Um, and the other reason it doesn't really matter who holds that seat is because that seat should belong to all of us. Uh, I strongly believe and have believed since my start in organizing and activism that 
congressional seats should be the people's seats. You know, like a, a representative is supposed to represent all of us. So that representative is essentially just a conduit to explain the issues of the community and find solutions for those issues. And so that representative has to be one of us. Um, and so, yeah, we were kind of, I was, my friends in activism spaces and peers in organizing spaces um, and in the Medicare for All movement here were kind of pushing me to run. And then eventually I decided to run um, in November of last year. And so that's kind of my trajectory into this movement, if that makes sense. I hope that answers your question a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And I really hope that you beat Jim Cooper because he sounds like he totally sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I should mention also he's completely a war hawk. He's bankrolled by corporations that make money from war. His three biggest donors are L3 Harris, Lockheed Martin, and Northrop Grumman. So that's another thing. So one thing that people you know, fear about Medicare for all is, you know, there's this framing that people like Pete Buttigieg use and say, like, you know, Americans don't want to have their private insurance taken away. And it's like, obviously, (laughs) as you know, leftists, we, uh, we know that this framing is complete BS. Um, But I was wondering, like, how do you talk about this with people who are concerned? Yeah. Um, I think that that is one of the most misleading corporate gaslighting things that it it drives me nuts when I hear that argument. And I think that that's the freedom argument is, is what is used to, to delegitimize the Medicare for all argument. And it drives me crazy because you're right. The framing is just so off. Um, And the way that I talk to people about this is I say everything that you like about your health insurance right now, which is not very much, but the fact that you can go to a doctor, that's probably what it is. Um, You will not lose under Medicare for all. That's number one. And number two, you're going to pay nothing for it. And you're going to pay way less for, for, um, to the pharmaceutical companies for prescriptions. And then number three is it expands our freedom, doesn't contract it. The freedom argument is an argument for Medicare for all, or at least it should be because it allows, it's going to erase all these terrible suffocating networks that are just complete BS. Like we cannot, I cannot, if I want to go to a dermatologist or something, I cannot just walk out my door and like pick a dermatologist to go to. I have to find one that's in my network. I have to find one that's covered by my insurance. I have to find one that has low co-pays with my insurance, that sort of thing. So instead of, instead of having these suffocating networks, we can literally just go wherever we want to whatever doctor we want And we never have to worry about our insurance saying no, and we never have to worry about the cost of it. So we're not going to be financially bound to to these networks. So that's the ultimate freedom to me. And then there's another layer, if people are still listening to me at this point, once I'm talking about this, um, I think there's a whole other layer of the, right now, these corporations, health insurance corporations and the pharmaceutical industry and lobbyists and legislators decide how much our life is worth. We're fodder for their money games. And to me, no other individual, no corporation and no oligarchy, oligarchy should be the arbiter of any one person's value. And that is anything except for Medicare for all, anything except for a system that completely pays for our health care and allows us the freedom to go wherever we want to consume health care. That is akin to an oligarchy deciding how much we are worth. And that is not freedom to me. 
so that that is the way that I have this conversation with people who who buy into the Pete Buttigieg like this isn't going Medicare for all who want it and it's like that's not this is a false dichotomy here so that's kind of how I have that conversation with people yeah absolutely I mean you know I think that I mean obviously it's very very cynical fear-mongering but also a lot of people you know are concerned because they imagine that like you know if health insurance were run by the government perhaps there would be some issues of people not being able to get the care they needed or being denied which is of course something that happens all the time with private insurance but Mm -hmm. um is there a way that you allay people's fears about you know the government like mismanaging it or Mm -hmm. Um, denying people care for financial reasons. Yeah, um, I think number one is just like you said, people get denied care all the time uh, or get surprise bills. um, And neither of those things will ever happen under Medicare for all. I think that and it's a it's a very easy mistake to make uh, between thinking that Medicare for all is going to control the healthcare we can consume versus Medicare for all is just going to give us access. And so I I think that the best way is simply those the best way to explain that is to simply say that those things just aren't true. Medicare for all isn't going to throttle the market or going to decrease the decrease your access. In fact, it's going to increase access. For example, 2019 was a record year for rural hospital closures. 18 rural hospitals closed and 119 have closed since 2010. So that sort of thing, that is the the kind of um the kind of thing that happens when we don't have Medicare for all. When we have Medicare for all, those rural hospitals will have funding. And not only will they stay open, but you'll be able to go to any doctor you want in them. So you're not going to have to drive, you know, people who live out in these rural counties in Tennessee's fifth, in Cheatham County and far out in Dixon County, they have to drive maybe one, two hours to get to a healthcare center at this point because they're maybe their rural hospital closed and that's not going to happen under Medicare for all because they'll have proper funding and they won't have to pay the high price that pharmaceuticals impose on them. Um, and, and, you know, we'll decrease, it'll, it'll decrease costs, not only for the individual, but for the hospitals that they want and the caretaker or the, excuse me. Yeah. The healthcare workers that they want to access. So the access argument, I think, is just a purposeful miscommunication of what Medicare for All does by people who oppose it and by the insurance lobby. Yeah, completely agree. And so well put also. Um, I was wondering, can we dive into rural hospitals a little more? Because sure. that seems to be uh, an area that you've really looked into a lot. And I don't think we've talked about um, that on the show yet. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm sure that most of our listeners are on some level with the crisis of uh, a lack of health care in rural areas. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that the crisis exists, like what are some things about it that you feel like people may not know? Sure, yeah. Um, so, and this is all according to uh, the Kaiser Foundation and Hospital Association. Uh, the top reasons that rural hospitals close are the high price that they have to negotiate with pharmaceuticals, um, and attacks on 340B, which is a government low drug cost program. Uh, And then the other reason would be Medicaid and Medicare not fairly reimbursing for care. 
So all of these things are, and I mean, it, it's just such an obvious connection, you know, like all of these things would be taken care of if we had Medicare for all, if we had a cap on the amount that pharmaceuticals could pay, pharmaceutical companies could charge for their drugs, if we no longer were attacking these government low drug cost programs, if they didn't have to worry about Medicaid and Medicare not fairly reimbursing. So I, I think that rural communities feel very left behind. Um, they they don't get spoken to very much. They don't get traveled to very much. And I know Jim Cooper, our current representative, isn't hosting town halls at all. He's definitely not doing them in rural communities. So I I think that when you have the only healthcare center for miles, it's it's saying it's more than just an inconvenience it's a statement about how much how much this kind of bureaucracy is leaving rural communities behind and I, I think when you feel left behind and disenfranchised that makes you not want to participate in the political process and so what we're trying to say is like we're all in this together and these are policies that help everyone not just urban communities not just the healthcare monopoly in Nashville, Tennessee, but it's it's all of Tennessee, all of Middle Tennessee, the rural communities included. So, yeah, I think this is this is a very crucial issue to speak to as part of Medicare for all and part of what a health a progressive healthcare policy would do for rural communities. Another thing that you mentioned was um Tennessee's decision to not participate in the Medicaid expansion and mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Tennessee is a pretty consistently red state. Um, It seems like Republican policies have hurt Tennesseans so much. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously, the Democratic Party has hurt a ton of people as well. You know, I mean, it's like it's it's not great to be uh, poor in New York, which is obviously a very blue state, you know, same with mm-hmm. Massachusetts and California. So, but like, what do you think the factors are that leads to, you know, these continual Republican victories mm-hmm. in a state where Republican policies are hurting people so much? Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, state level politics in Tennessee are so just shameful like so terrible (laughs) we have so democrats have a super minority in the tennessee state legislature um and some really exciting recent bills that republicans in the state legislature have proposed are uh literally a bill to just to praise trump on his foreign policy that's one um yeah (laughs) like what um uh, another bill that would declare Washington Post and New York Times fake news. Um, it, I mean, it's it's literally just a circus. It's unbelievable. Uh, on the state level, Tennessee is always trying to find ways to exclude Planned Parenthood from receiving state Medicaid reimbursements. When distributing Title IX funds, reproductive health centers are systematically made the lowest priority. Um, and it, And so it's just... The state level, we have such the Republicans have such a have completely throttled state politics here, and it's it's very upsetting. Um, and so, even talking about you know Democrats in the state legislature will talk about Medicaid expansion, and I know Medicare is never going to become Medicare for all to, for Tennessee. It's just not going to happen because they can't even talk about Medicaid expansion at this point because there are so many Republicans in the state house. Um, 
So yeah, that's we're trying indivisible here is trying to flip a lot of those seats. So I'm really hopeful that that's going to change in the next few years. Yeah, I I definitely hope so as well. Um, would you say that like how much of this do you think is because of voter disenfranchisement? Like, do you think that the population of Tennessee is as Republican as it looks like from the elections or yeah, that no. so many people aren't participating or can't yeah, yeah I mean um I don't know I, I used to know the exact figures off the top of my head of who voted in the last congressional primary but I mean it's so few people I they there are a few documented cases of not only voter suppression on like the committee that you know, um, I'm not saying this, I'm not articulating this well, like the Tennessee Secretary of State literally trying to directly suppress the votes of marginal, already marginalized communities um, through a few different means, like putting voting locations far away from those communities or making voting hours directly during working hours, that sort of thing. Um, and another really cogent argument, I think, here is... Um, for transit we don't we have basically no public transit here we have a bus system it's terrible um and for a city of our size uh it's just unbelievable and that leaves all transit dependent communities who already have trouble getting around and if you're putting a voting location far away from their community you know that that's going to make it very difficult for them to access a voting booth um and just not advertising the dates of when elections are, purging voter records, all these kind of semi-legal but should be illegal ways of of either purging the votes of these communities or just ensuring they don't participate because it's too difficult. Uh, and I think that there's, I you know, beyond that, I think there's a lot of disillusionment, which I think disillusionment and apathy are two of the most dangerous things. Um, I think that we can we can't combat all of these if we don't, if we feel like it's not going to work. Uh, and I think a lot, there's a lot of disillusionment um, just in, in general since Trump was elected, uh, just kind of feeling like there's nothing we can do. This is how the state and the country feels and that's the will of the people and I'm just going to stay out of it. And that is just so disappointing and sad to me because obviously the only way to combat this is to vote. Uh, this is structural legislative change that has to happen at the electoral level and voting is such an important way to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not the only way to get involved in general and to move the needle in general, obviously, but it is such a, for people who do have access to a voting booth, it is such an easy way to participate. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of disillusionment and disenfranchisement and together that's a potent way to keep us quiet. Agree. And it's so inspiring to see so many young people like yourself and older people running for office. Um, what has the experience been like for you to be running for Congress? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy. So I'm I'm turning 25 in April, so I'm I'm just old enough to be doing this. Um, I think that for a while and we see this with the climate movement and the climate strikes for a while young people were kind of told like these are issues that are best left up to older people who have been in this for a while. And 
over time we kind of realized like, well, this, this is not working for us. And if it was, then, then we wouldn't feel so left out, you know? Um, and I, I think that people have gotten very fed up with feeling condescended to talk down to. And that's something that Jim Cooper is really great at. Um, when a bunch of sunrise activists went to talk to him, he didn't answer any of their questions and then gave them a book recommendation and said, I've done way more for the climate than you ever have. So like, there's just like this element of condescension. That's like, Oh, you're young. You don't understand this stuff. And it's like, well, understanding if understanding this stuff means taking tons of money from defense contractors and, the military industrial complex, then like, maybe I don't understand it. But frankly, that's not what we think understanding this stuff means. Uh, and so when you kind of pull back the curtain, you realize like, oh, well, being a good representative isn't, to me, being a good congressperson doesn't mean being great at manipulating people and great at being in Congress. It means being great at representing your people and being one of, being a part of the community and being one of us. And that is not what a lot of these blue dog Democrats, a lot of these centrist Democrats, establishment politicians are doing right now. And I think that young people are acutely aware of this because we grew up in an environment where we, all we're hearing is like gloom and doom. And it's like, well, what are we supposed to do? We either give up or fight the system that is creating that. And we see climate change as an existential threat. We see that the healthcare crisis has reached a fever pitch. We see that a homes guarantee is completely possible. And all these things, all these policies that seemed radical and impossible were like, oh, we can just vote out those people and vote in people who will make it possible. Um, and so I think it's a lot of anger and this weird paradox of pessimism and optimism combined is what's galvanizing young people to get involved and and realize that we we do know enough because we grew up in this environment. We're part of these communities and we've educated ourselves. And so we know enough to run for office. We know enough to get involved in in politics on the local, state, and federal level. Um, and obviously, I think AOC's victory was a huge part of that. You know, a lot more people, young people are running this time around. So, yeah, that that's kind of what it's been like. I, there's definitely a few comments here and there that are like, you're too young to be doing this, that sort of thing. And I, I understand the skepticism, but it's like, it's like, I, to me, that's so meaningless. <laughs> like, I'm just like, it doesn't really matter how old you are, as long as you're not like, literally three years old. Um, like if you, if you're part of your community, and you understand deeply the issues in your community and your state, and your district, and you are willing to fight for resolutions to those issues and you care about the the community then you should run and that that kind of encouragement that I got from the people around me and people pushing me to run in local organizing circles is has been really awesome it, it's overall been a really great experience honestly people have been really encouraging and the solidarity is awesome I, I I truly it does sound cheesy but I truly feel like it's all of us running it's not me running <laughs> like it, it's just it's for everybody so we're all doing it together and trying to turn this into the people's seat not my seat if that makes sense yeah I mean, it makes complete sense and beautifully expressed as well I, I know <laughs> I've you know I, I've just definitely felt such incredible solidarity with people um mm -hmm. throughout the past 
I don't know, six, eight months as we all uh, do this together. It's, it yeah. is, it's an uncertain time, but it's a special time. Um, all right. So like into some logistics, you know, I'm sure that uh, our listeners have enjoyed this interview. Uh, definitely. At least the parts of it where you were talking. <laughs> um, no. and, uh, yeah. So tell me, you know, what is the date of your race? How can people vote for you, donate to you, uh, volunteer for you? Sure. Um, so yeah, you can, first of all, follow me on Twitter, <laughs> Meredith underscore 2020. Uh, also Meredith for Congress.com. Meredith is spelled M E R E D I T H. I should mention that. Um, Meredith for Congress.com and hit I'm in, and then you'll be added to our listserv. You just put your email in. We don't send emails very often and you'll hear about volunteering opportunities, door knocking opportunities, phone banking, text banking, all of that. And at the top of our website, top left, you can hit donate and donate literally any amount to our Act Blue. Um, and yeah, our election, uh, the primary is August 6th. So we, it's still a little bit of a ways away. Well, Meredith, uh, it has been a true pleasure talking with you. I feel personally inspired and I also really wish you the best with your race. Um, it's so cool what you're doing. And I, I certainly wish that I had my shit together like that when I was 24. Um, and you know, I just, uh, yeah, we here at reply guys wish you the absolute best you rule. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much, Kate. I'm a huge fan of reply guys and you. So this, this meant a lot to me. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. Uh, the show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, O-H julia tweets and twitter is where you can also find our reply guys they are always with us bernie take us out as i went walking that ribbon of highway i saw above me that endless skyway I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land.